Now to our next guest in the Top 5 Books podcast. We're joined by lecturer in the UCD School of Politics and International Relations and regular, of course, on The Moncrief Show. It is, of course, Graham Finley. Graham, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Before we get to your choices, you know, you're, you're a bookish academic kind of guy. I, I'm, I'm guessing you were immersed from the very start in books. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, when I was, I mean, I've got a son who's 11 and he's now well into the phase where he's reading a book a day, basically. And sure, I was that kid. Wow, I'm kind of like a book a year at the moment. <laughs> well, I know. I yeah. mean, he he's into a book yeah. a day. Uh, and I was that kid. I would, you know, be proud of the 50 books I checked out of the library. I later worked in a public library, and then I worked in a used bookshop uh, where I ended up owing them money. It was, it was embarrassing. But uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I always was really, really into books and reading. What is a bit shocking, and I can't believe I'm admitting this, is that as I have progressed, I guess, or at least got older as an academic and had more responsibilities, I have had less time to read. I mean, it's a scandal. But, I you know, I, you, I mean, I, I read in theory for a living, but all the other stuff I do crowds into it. And yeah. so so it's really hard to find time. I mean, it's partly my fault. There's lots of other distractions in my life. I read lots of things which are on screens, uh, including books. But, you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, as an academic, how little time you, you have to read. And often it's very instrumental reading because you've got to you know, write that article. You've got to very make that similar, report. You're, very similar as a journalist, I yeah, think. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're, do, you're I, always reading for a purpose as opposed to just like, what are you? And I've got thousands of books in my house. You know, yeah. I'm just going to go read, put something random off the shelf and read it. Yeah, for the, for the pleasure of it. Okay, um, I suppose one of your distractions from reading it could be argued is playing Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. which is your, uh, your first uh, choice. Basic set 1977 are... Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Monster yeah. Manual yeah. seventy seven to seventy nine. Yeah. Now I have to say, <laughs> interesting choice, unique choice. We have not gone here before. Tell us why. Tell us the thinking. I think. I mean, so I was uh, they're exactly the right age for when Dungeons and Dragons hit in nineteen seventy seven. I remember it when it was in my middle school in Canada, and well, you were appeared. what about? I was about again eleven or twelve. Yeah. I mean, okay. I can't remember exactly when people became aware of it. And in many ways, you could see it as sort of just another craze, like buying a Tamagotchi or something like that. I know I'm dating myself there as well. But, you know, <laughs> it was more than that. It was a chance to really make things up for yourself. And so while I was already really into books, as I was saying, it steered me in the path of a lot of great stuff. But it was also really, really powerful. I mean, there's a book, but there's also dice and things like that. And in a way, that's never gone away. People talk about how they thought that board games and, and you know role-playing games would be destroyed by computer games or, or online video games, they haven't been. They're actually They're bigger and better than They're a bit of a comeback, actually. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you, I, I love video games, although I don't have any time to play them either. But they're very scripted, whereas you are completely in control of, of yourself. And if you're the dungeon master, uh, as nerds will know, you know, uh, of everything, if you're, if you're the dungeon master in, uh, in Dungeons and & Dragons. And it's, it's really, really quite powerful. And, you know, I think it's, never, it's not replaceable. And a lot of people, like Stephen Colbert has talked about how as an actor, he learned his ability to tell stories partly from playing Dungeons and Dragons. So that was really, really important. But it also led to a lot more reading. I mean, in the sense that it, it changed my focus. You know, the reason I brought up sort of monster manuals and, and a rather obscure book called Deities and Demigods, which they had to recall because they put a whole bunch of characters and gods from H.P. Lovecraft, one of my other favorite authors who could easily be on this list. So it turned all these monsters and all these gods came from somewhere. And, and the guys who put together the Dungeons and Dragons manuals would be drawing on the Epic of Gilgamesh and they would be 
you know, bringing in H.P. Lovecraft and, and, and led to me reading a lot of fantasy fiction, all yeah. these classics by Fritz Lieber and Robert E. Howard and things like that and J.R.R. Tolkien, but also to reading Dante. So when I was a sort of young teenager, I was reading Dante's Inferno because I thought it would help with the Dungeons and Dragons, but it actually gave me a sort of lifelong love of Dante. And I have a huge collection of Dante books, including some original editions of a key translation by Charles Singleton with his own sort of notes on his own translation in the margins, which I have to give to this villa in Italy when I die. Uh, and so because Dante is really, really powerful. So, so it doesn't just suck you in and turn you into a proto video gamer. I think far from that, it actually opens you up to a whole world of literature and myth, which I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Okay, cards on the table here. <laughs> I, I don't do fantasy, I have to say. My, my wife always laughs. laughs. If we're ever watching a drama and there's anything that's remotely implausible, I go, oh, no, I can't watch. I just can't watch anymore. If it's not real life, the appeal of this I mean as a game my understanding of it I've, I've never played it, is you actually play together instead of against each other is that right is that one of the appeals of it yeah so imagine I mean the difference between a choose your own adventure also something I like these were developed by Steve Jackson again around about the same time in the late 80s and you know you're flipping your goat if you do you use your sword go to page 53 you didn't probably do those either uh, but anyway um <laughs> That's really, really highly structured and be quite frustrating, even though there's some now really good apps actually based on those original Steve Jackson stories. They're quite good, actually. And a video game, again, I think the reason why Grand Theft Auto is one of the great cultural works of our time is it's as open as it can be in terms of things and why people became addicted to these online multiplayer games, which are adventure based. But you do play together with people. It's a social thing. And again, it's a social thing to play online. But if you're in the room together and you're building something together and you're doing it, you know, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, over years and years and years, I played Dungeons and Dragons in grad school as well, which was either really, really uncool or really cool. It was so uncool. It was cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> People were very confused by that. So, you know, it's a collective project and it's really, really good fun. And it, I think it touches parts of your brain, which even the best video games can't, I think. Okay. Just finally on this, uh, I'm curious, and this is based, this question is based entirely on ignorance. Is it more a game than a book? It's more of a game than a book, but there's a book. There is a book. Um, And again, I don't have time to play role-playing games. I don't have a role-playing group. Uh, Again, I probably wouldn't have time to play in one if I did, because it is a bit time-consuming. But I actually quite like reading the books as books. And there's actually another great role-playing game based on the work of H.P. Lovecraft. I I don't know if everyone knows H.P. Lovecraft. You should. He's huge outside the English language. In Italy and in Spain and in France, he is absolutely massive. But he's a very, very weird writer from the 20s and 30s in the United States. Who's, it's all about these monsters. And basically, the hero always gets eaten by a terrible monster in the end, just to give the story away. Uh, <laughs> and this Call of Thule, who's based on, on the work of H.P. Lovecraft, and it's all full of this sort of Indiana Jones type stuff. But I like looking at how they construct the scenario to see how it's, whether it's a good game or not. I'm actually quite fascinated with games, what makes a good game. I think playing games is a really, really interesting metaphor for a lot of things. It's used in the philosophy of language. If you think about the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein, which sees language not as something which is private to all of us, and here am I thinking about the meanings and I'm trying to convey them to you, but these weird symbols, but a game we're playing. We're having a game. We're playing a game right now, which is you interviewing me, right? So, And it's used in, of course, economics. It's used in lots of areas of life, the idea that we're playing games, right, I think is an absolutely fascinating concept. Just lastly on this, do you play this with your kids now or do you? you No, I don't, but my kids do like games and and I'm I'm going to out, some of them would be interested in playing role-playing games. You know, kids like games, they still do. And they like, probably a, with, they like actually sitting down with their parents and playing they games. They do like sitting down with your, their parents and playing games. I mean, it's it's tougher with some kids than others. I've got a 20-year-old son and a, an 11-year-old son. But, you know, there are games we can we can get into playing.